You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 92 by Rudolf Steiner, the listener's notes of 16 lectures, entitled The Occult Truths of Myths and Legends, translated by Paul King. This is Lecture 9, given in Berlin on the 21st of October 1904, entitled The Legend of Siegfried. When we try to form a living picture of the emergence of the Nordic mythological world, the period before the first Christian century and thereafter is of particular importance. At that time, the northern regions of Europe were in a state of expectation. The event whose outworking was expected to spread over Europe, the descent of the Divine Father Spirit into a human physical being, was known to the initiates of the northern peoples. It was also foretold in the mysteries. In the ancient Druid mysteries of the North, similar initiations were performed as those among other peoples on the ascent at that time. But a difference needs to be highlighted between what was in preparation in the North and what was occurring in other regions. To get some idea of this for ourselves, we need to cast our gaze back to the emergence of the human races in the regions of the earth that were gradually becoming the habitations of people. It is only possible to speak of a physically habitable earth from the Lemurian root race onward. But this Lemurian period was preceded by an etheric earth to which the myths of paradise refer, as well as the mythologies of the various peoples of the northern and southern parts of the earth. They are what constitute the mysteries' treasures of wisdom. Schooling in the mysteries, depending on people's level of understanding, consisted of gradually revealing to them what the human soul was capable of absorbing and working on. So, we can speak of the mysteries having a common origin that lies in the imaginative and inspirative knowledge of its guiding teachers, and therefore also of the unity of the teachings, but also of the differences that have arisen through the course of time and geographic and human environments. They were protected by the most stringent obligation of silence, because in premature hands evil would result instead of good, and betraying the mysteries to premature people incurred the penalty of death. Let's shed some light on what were the common principles underlying the ancient Atlantean mysteries, which emerged from the oracle centers as schools of initiation. Based on Neoplatonic sources and on Plotinus, The chronological research in theosophical literature follows the accepted view that in Socrates we have the historical moment at which the wisdom previously inspired by divine beings and that used man as its instrument descended into man, into the anthropos, and gradually became his property, his task, his duty. Socrates still had to suffer death for passing on truths from the mysteries to his pupils. He accepted the death sentence willingly and consciously. But the metamorphosis of this idea of a consciously experienced death that really leads then to true life 
at first to ripen in the northern peoples. They were prepared for it slowly and gradually by what was living in their own mysteries and were brought to a greater level of maturity in their soul organism through a long period of waiting. Buddha was expelled from his religious community because he went out, wandered from place to place, and brought people the teaching of liberation through death. This was a mystery truth, not yet allowed to be taught. It could only become valid in a far distant time, and at present could only live in single fire souls who were preparing this future time. It would only find its fulfillment in Christianity. But until that time of fulfillment, certain peoples had to receive a training in their mysteries, which, as the substance of the nation, predestined them for the far distant tasks of human civilization. We were preceded by four root races, We are the fifth root race, the post-Atlantean race. The names given to the first sub-races or cultural epochs of this post-Atlantean time can be translated into English approximately with the words the sub-races of the spirit, the flame, and the stars. The first sub-race, the race of the spirit, was given the content of the fifth root race in spiritual form by Manu, It encompasses the Indian people. The second sub-race is the race of the flame, which was given a religion by Zarathustra. The third sub-race was the race of the stars, that of the Chaldeans, Babylonians, Assyrians, from which the Israelite tradition later emerged. The Greco-Roman peoples, who have their first chief representatives in Greek and Roman culture, were the fourth sub-race. This is the one in which Christianity first took root in Asia Minor, Greece and Rome. It was destined to be the one most strongly influenced by Christianity, but it was not yet able to grasp its significance, which surpasses the capacity of human comprehension. A long preparation was needed for this. This was provided by the sagas in the Nordic mysteries, which lived on in song and epic and were carried in rhapsodic form from land to land and intensified to religious ardor. Our fifth root race received Christianity, founded at the beginning of our time reckoning, as something passed down to us. But a few centuries before Christianity was brought to the northern regions, and even in older times, the ancient Druid initiations existed. They continued to exist until roughly the point when it was clear that the twilight of this preparing Celtic culture had begun. We must bear in mind that all the influences that had affected other peoples had not reached these northerly regions. All the currents that were part of the race of the flame and the race of the stars had not penetrated as far as these northerly regions. In the north something had remained of the remnants of Atlantean culture that had been brought across by initiates. Woden, or Odin, was the initiate of the northern peoples who had brought the elements of Atlantean culture into these regions. Everywhere in these northerly regions it was Druidic initiation that was practiced. I have already related that one of the founders, we could even say the chief founder, of these initiation centers was called Sig or Siga. And something happened here in these northern regions that was similar to what happened later in Palestine at the founding of Christianity. 
Sig surrendered his body and gave it into the service of a high individuality. This is why the changed Sig was later called Odin. Odin was the bearer of the spiritual culture at this time. Thus, Sig was the Chela in the north, who placed his body at the disposal of the higher, more spiritual Odin. He lived on later as an initiated master. Sig is a very special case. After the beginning of Christianity, he could not start a movement in the way the Master Jesus had done. Sig has to lead this northern culture, which had established itself here, to its downfall. He is called upon to lead the northern peoples up to the point where Christianity reaches them from the south through the fourth sub-race of the fifth root race. The ancient Chela, Sig, is the one who must lead the northern peoples into their tragic doom. This is why he is also called Sigurd, which means, quote, the one who leads into the past, close quote. Erd, U-R-D, is the Norn of the past. Frid means the same as, quote, that which leads to peace, close quote. In other words, to death, to demise. This is preserved in the German word Friedhof, which is graveyard, that which is led to death. The same Chela, who had prepared the way for the great initiate, had to lead northern culture to its demise. Its spiritual content declines and is replaced by advancing Christianity. What I have just said was the content of a prophecy which was described in the later mysteries of the northern peoples in the following way. We have to be a people that is led to peace. This is what sounds out in the various mysteries of these northern peoples. The whole course of future events written in the texts from primordial times was proclaimed in the northern mysteries and what later became the content of the, quote, Song of the Nibelungs, close quote, and the legend of Siegfried arose from these prophecies. The second part of the Song of the Nibelungs depicts the completion of the Nibelungs' karma. I need to mention a peculiarity that always occurs in a situation like this in the development of humanity. Before a new phase sets in, there has to be a brief repetition of the previous phase of development. This repetition of previous phases is particularly evident here in the North. It shows us how what had been occurring in the North since Lemurian and Atlantean times had to be overcome before these Northern peoples would be sufficiently mature to develop themselves up to the Christianized fifth root race, the one in whom the sum total of northern culture's history lives, is the initiated Siegfried. So, let's look briefly at the main points of the Siegfried saga. At the beginning we are presented with the life of three heroes, Gunther, Hagen, and Giseler, at the court of Worms. We then hear how the hero Siegfried woos Brunhild on Gunther's behalf. We hear that at the court in Worms, Siegfried is regarded as an exceptional personality, and indeed he is, for he is invulnerable. He has killed the possessors of the Nibelung's treasure hoard, has made his whole body hard as horn from his battle with the dragon, and has won the cloak of invisibility. So he has two attributes always evident in initiates of pre-Christian times. They are invulnerable 
and they are unrecognizable. They are invulnerable due to their initiation. In the Gospel it says, There are three that bear witness, blood, water, and the Spirit. Blood and water have to be conquered. It was blood and water that made the initiate invulnerable in the times preceding Christianity, but these initiates always had a spot where they could be wounded. Achilles is the depiction of an initiate in earlier times. He was dipped in the river Styx and was vulnerable on his heel. Siegfried was dipped in the blood of the dragon and was vulnerable between his shoulder blades. An initiate can make his true nature unrecognizable because he possesses the cloak of invisibility. This makes the possessor of higher occult faculties imperceptible to the external world. The owners of the Nibelung treasure had these occult abilities. They originated from the Atlantean race and it was especially the initiates of the Atlantean root race that had these capacities. But they were also present in the initiates of the fifth root race and thus Siegfried had them too. When Siegfried slew the dragon, he came into possession of the Nibelung treasure hoard. So what is this Nibelung treasure? It expresses the fact that the Nordic peoples provided the ground and soil, so to speak, from which the fifth sub-race could emerge. The fifth sub-race is also called the race of great discoveries and inventions, which conquers the whole physical plane and becomes great in possession of the external world. It ought to possess, on the one hand, and transform this possession into wisdom, on the other. We should see in the Nibelung treasure nothing other than a linguistic mutation of the ancient word Niflheim, Nibelheim, the place of mists from German Nebel, mist, and Heim, home. It is what was known in the north as the physical earth, the earth at the moment it started to become physical. What this preparatory race had spread out around it and what Christianity encountered in it is solid possession. The gold of the Nibelung treasure is earthly possession, the representative of earthly possession. This is something the initiate possesses and what he is allowed to possess because he can keep watch over it in the appropriate manner. Now you all know how the Siegfried saga continues in this old version. It is not the oldest version of the saga, but is the one that concerns us. As is known, Gunther then woos Brunhild of Iceland. Siegfried twice overcomes Brunhild in combat. Gunther strives for her hand, but Siegfried, armed with the cloak of invisibility, fights invisibly at Gunther's side, and Brunhild believes that it is her suitor, Gunther, who has won in the combat against her. Siegfried is glad that she becomes Gunther's wife, but now, in a moment of weakness, Siegfried's wife, Kriemhild, betrays the secret to Brunhild, that in reality it was the invisible Siegfried, and not Gunther, who conquered her. Brunhild is outraged and plans to kill Siegfried, but she must first discover how he can be killed. For this she wins over Hagen von Tronje, who lives at the court. Hagen is a figure we know from the ancient Druid mysteries. Hagen is an important name of ancient Druid initiates. He is an initiate who represents the highest streams of spiritual life lying in the past, which comes to expression in the fact that what went before 
always opposes what comes afterward and does battle with it. Siegfried belongs to the subsequent stream, immediately preceding Christianity. Hagen belongs to the preceding Druid stream. Thus Hagen is brought in to destroy Siegfried. For this to happen, Kriemhild has to betray that Siegfried is vulnerable on a particular spot. The meaning of this spot here becomes clear. Kriemhild reveals that Siegfried is vulnerable between his shoulder blades and precisely on the spot where the cross has to be carried. He doesn't have the cross yet. Christianity is still absent in these ancient peoples. On the spot where the cross will rest in order to be carried through the world, that is where Siegfried is vulnerable. So the Siegfried saga tells us because Christianity is not yet present. Siegfried, who leads the Sig initiates to peace, to rest, is vulnerable on the spot where Christianity later makes people invulnerable. He is overcome by residual powers from previous cultures. Hagen, the representative of previous streams, kills him. This is a depiction of the previous Nordic culture being succeeded by the fifth sub-race. The meaning of this succession is known in the Siegfried Saga. So, what is it that these Nordic races are actually fighting against? In paving the way for Christianity, they fight against all the old elements that have remained behind from the Atlantean period. They have to defend themselves against these constantly. The soul of the Nordic peoples must defend itself against what still assaults it from the remnants of Atlantean culture. It is an earlier layer of culture that protrudes here into the fifth cultural epoch. But those who have remained behind in Atlantean culture are an impediment to further development and must be fought. Later battles are depicted in an older version of the Gudrun saga. Here we encounter the soul of the Nordic peoples in Gudrun. She fights against the great initiate of the Atlanteans, against Attila or Atli or Etzel, who comes from a remnant of an Atlantean race, the Turanians, and approaches from Asia. The historical Attila and his people were also called, quote, the scourge of God, close quote, by the Europeans. Attila was an initiate with very significant occult powers who fought at the head of his tribes. This is why it is right to say of the battles with the Huns that the hordes fought in the air. For anyone who knows and understands these things, it is clear what this is about. Attila didn't retreat from anything he encountered in Europe. He only retreated voluntarily from the Pope, the representative of Christianity, for he was fully aware that he could do nothing against the representative of Christianity. The Nordic peoples knew they had to defend themselves against influences from the East, but these were unable to harm Christianity. Now, the later Nibelung saga tells us that Kriemhild made a plan to take revenge on those who had killed Siegfried. She takes revenge in a way that connects her with Atlantean elements. She manages to recruit Attila's hordes. She becomes the wife of the Hun king, Attila. After the death of Siegfried, she had lived for a while at the Burgundian court. She had come into possession of the Nibelung horde and had used it as a kind of benefactress. But her enemies, who originated in previous epochs and were represented in Hagen, sank the Nibelung treasure into the Rhine. 
Kriemhild kept to her plan of destroying her old Nordic enemies with the help of Attila. By Kriemhild's plan, the Nibelungs are enticed down to Attila's court, and on the way they encounter precisely those spirit forces that were to succeed them. At the Danube they meet Christianity in the form of Rudiger von Beklaren and his wife Gotalinda. Here is the dawning glow of Christianity, that which was to take the place of the cultures of the North European peoples. The Nibelungs meet their downfall. They are murdered at the Honig court. Although she gets her revenge, Kriemhild also meets her own downfall. And how does this happen? She, who is the transformed Gudrun, the folk soul of Nordic culture, associates herself with Atli Attila Etzel, the Atlantean, and takes revenge on the representatives of her own culture, who had killed an initiate. She herself dies. If you only look at the saga aesthetically, you will naturally ask, how is it that at the end Dietrich von Bern, Hildebrand, and all the other heroes, who belong to a layer that has already converted to Christianity, are introduced to the Hunnic court? After all, they are Christian heroes already. Christianity brings death to the old folk soul. It overcomes the old folk soul. This is not something that was inserted into the saga later on, but something that had lived as a prophecy in the mysteries long before the emergence of Christianity. These events were a theme in mystery initiation. It is not only initiation into the truths of the present that are part of mystery initiation, but also those of the past and the future. An apocalyptic element was always a part of it. The Siegfried saga had been the apocalypse of the northern peoples for a long time. This saga is not a poetic invention, somehow emerging out of the people from separate pieces, as is imagined by philologists. The people don't write poetry of this nature. Only someone who has no idea how things happen in the soul of a people could say such things. The sagas are nothing other than depictions of what took place in the crypts of the mystery center. What is contained in the saga is nothing other than a portrayal of mystery processes. Such a process for which in the South they had the word mysterium was called a mera in the North, from which our word merchen, fairy tale, later arose for the lesser processes. Quote, Uns ist in alten Meeren wunders viel gezeit. Close quote. In ancient tales many wonders are told us. Quote, wonders is no less than a sign, close quote, a sign for things seen as happening on higher planes. Norse mythology is so interesting because it portrays something that cannot be found in any of the southern mythologies. What the southern peoples portray in their myths always signifies an ascent. They have always received and adopted something that leads to a higher stage. The Indian, Persian, Babylonian, Chaldean peoples and those which succeeded them also have tragic figures, to be sure. Just recall the Kronos myth. But the tragic element is most developed in the north, because the peoples there had to wait a long time. It was a culture of preparation that lasted a long time with a high form of initiation, which, and this is the important point, was a culture that descended so far that the initiate was a human being. The initiate of India 
was a bodhisattva. Then they were rishis. Later among the Greeks, the initiates were sun heroes, such as Hercules and Achilles. Only once the ladder of initiates had descended so far did the initiated human individual appear here in the north, who was lacking only one thing, namely, that which is Christ, the man become God. We encounter the man of the north in an attitude of waiting. He is vulnerable on the spot where Christianity must establish itself. So we have four layers to take into consideration. Firstly, Woden, he runs parallel with what was developing in the south in the first sub-race of the fifth root race. Secondly, Odin. He runs parallel with the second sub-race of the fifth root race. Thirdly, Baldur, the sun hero. He runs parallel with what developed in the south as the Babylonian Chaldean Assyrian epoch. But what is an ascending culture there is a waiting culture in the north. And, fourthly, initiates of the waiting culture expressing the element of tragedy. Because the old forces are coming to an end, we see the tragic death of Baldur and the tragic death of Siegfried. The end of Lecture 9